I have a question that I think the folks in this audience will be able to give me an answer to. I sincerely, legitimately want to know what a globalist is. What is a globalist? What does it mean to be a globalist? What positions, what ideas, what premises makes one a globalist? This is something that is not immediately obvious to me. It seems as though the term globalist is used as an epitaph, you know, kind of like calling somebody a racist or a sexist to just kind of categorize them and dismiss them and not have to actually confront the content of their speech. And we have an example of that here to start off the show this evening, closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Catch us streaming at TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. It's always great having you with us. Appreciate you joining us. You can catch up on past shows by doing a search for closing argument in your iHeartRadio app, and our channel will pop right up. 651-989-5855 is the number to give me an answer to that question. What is a globalist? Brad Ullman takes those calls and produces the show. From Vice News, Donald Trump lashed out at the globalist Koch brothers Tuesday, calling them a total joke among Republicans after members of the conservative mega donors network criticized the White House's protectionist trade policies over the weekend. We talked about this story yesterday, the fact that the the Koch brothers and their network of uh, high spending political donors have made the decision to and you know I I thought they did so in a very respectful way. They they didn't single out Trump. They didn't talk about how horrible Donald Trump is. They talked about the policy. They talked about the importance of free trade. They objected to tariffs and it was pretty pretty kid gloves, but what the one thing they did say, the one thing they did suggest is that at this point after having backed exclusively backed Republicans in an effort to advance a free trade agenda and just basically a freedom agenda for many years, they're now at a point where they're willing to work across the aisle. They're willing to look at Democrats. They're willing to look at anybody who is actually going to follow through on uh, a commitment to free trade principles into a free economy. Continuing at Vice News, Trump claimed He had beaten the brothers at every turn that their network of donors was overrated and that their attacks on his administration were prompted by a desire to protect their own business interests. Well, yeah. Yeah, that's always true. Anytime somebody's advocating for freedom, it's because they want to be free and it's in their interest to be free. Because here's the thing. It's literally in everybody's interest to be free. So, yeah, what's your point? They want to protect their companies outside the U.S. from being taxed. I'm for America first and the American worker, a puppet for no one. Two nice guys with bad ideas, Trump tweeted. Well, it's a nice little backhanded compliment he got in there for him. Leaders of the Coke Network surprised Washington Saturday when they announced that their American for Progress group of roughly 500 top conservative donors would no longer solely fund GOP candidates but would also consider pro-growth Democrats. If you are a Democrat and stand up to Elizabeth Warren, 
to corral enough votes for financial reform that breaks barriers for community banks and families. You're darn right we will work with you, Emily Sedell, CEO of the group, told attendees at the group's retreat. In a rare briefing with reporters, Charles Koch echoed that idea, saying, I don't care what initials are in front of or after somebody's name. The announcement came at the network's annual summit in Colorado Springs, where speakers laid into the White House's protectionist policies. The divisiveness of this White House is causing long-term damage, Brian Hooks, a senior Koch lieutenant, told reporters. Now, that was the closest, that was the most direct attack that was made against the White House, and it didn't even mention Donald Trump. And it was aimed specifically at policy. So, to respond to that, I mean, I can't say I'm surprised that the response from Trump was to tweet, quote, the globalist Koch brothers who have become a total joke in real Republican circles, are against strong borders and powerful trade. That's another thing I'd like an answer to. What is powerful trade? What makes trade powerful? Apparently, force. Apparently, the imposition of the state is what makes trade powerful. I, I don't know how, but clearly that's the connection that's being made here. Trump continued in his tweet, I never sought their support because I don't need their money or bad ideas. They love my tax and regulation cuts, judicial picks, and more. Well, yeah. Okay. I made them richer. Their network is highly overrated. I have beaten them at every turn. When, how, where, at what point? They want to protect their companies outside the U.S. from being taxed. I'm for America first and the American worker, a puppet for no one. Two nice guys with bad ideas make America great again, exclamation point. So that's the response from Donald Trump. So this is my open question to you tonight, particularly for, for folks who are concerned about quote globalism unquote what does that word even mean what is a globalist what is globalism and i'll let you think about it you don't have to call right now at 651-989-5855 you can come back in a segment or two i mean really think it through and then call in and let me know what globalism is because i don't know i i don't understand what the 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 thing is here that we're supposed to be upset about meanwhile let's turn to more local happenings from the star tribune and also growing out of a story we covered yesterday, about 200 protesters decrying the fatal police shooting of Thurman Blevins blocked the light rail tracks in downtown Minneapolis Tuesday evening. So we're back to this. We're back to blocking infrastructure in order to make a political point. The group, which gathered at the Hennepin County Government Center at 4.30 p.m., began marching down the light rail track shortly before 6 p.m., They stopped and formed a circle at 5th Street and Marquette Avenue where passengers unloaded from stopped trains, chanting, participating in a moment of silence, and taking a knee. Did somebody somebody bring a a boombox with the national anthem in order to facilitate the taking of a knee? I'm I'm not following this. The protesters continued on the tracks to Target Field, stopping again at 5th and Nicollet. The twins started playing at 7.10 p.m. The protesters gathered outside the field around 7.30 Metro Transit confirmed the blockage, tweeting, due to a demonstration in downtown Minneapolis, there may be delays for buses and both blue and green line trains. So, you know, screw you, I guess, if you're trying to get anywhere uh, on, a, on a Tuesday night, it's more important for people to make their point about a, the cleanest shoot ever caught on video. Well, joke's on them because no one's going to the Twins game. <laughs> uh, Brad really leaned into that one. He was He was waiting to pounce on that one. All right. Well, hey, we got an answer to the question. Gary in St. Paul, what is a globalist? You tell me, buddy. A globalist is someone who wants one world government, simply. Is that what the Koch brothers want? Is that what the Koch brothers want? 
Uh, yes. How? Yes, actually, I, I don't want to get into the man. I really, it's, I was trying to put it into a concise answer. If you want the how, that's going to take a little bit more okay. time. Okay. All right. Well, oh, let, let me make it simple. Make it, let me make it simple because I don't want to get, I don't want to get, uh, into some some charts of, of cutouts for magazines connected with red yarn. What's that? I said the people that are protesting, that are obstructing traffic, yeah. they should be arrested. Well, uh, on that we certainly agree. doesn't mean that they get away with it. They, they should, protesting despite the law doesn't mean that you get away with breaking the law. Absolutely correct. <laughs> well, we can, we can definitely part ways agreeing on that. I appreciate the call, Gary. I, okay, they want world government. So which part of free trade equals or is even a component of world government? Somebody needs to explain that to me. I don't, I, cause I mean, free trade, free anything is, it's not the absence of government, like governments involved in the, the same way that government's involved in everything, which is responding against initiation of force. So if a criminal or, you know, we're talking about international relations here, right? So like, I guess a pirate, if your shipment's going to get attacked by pirates, which is apparently still a thing in some parts of the world, you know, Somalia and what have you. Um, okay. Then we can have some international agreements between governments in order to effectively respond to that. Is that world government? Is that globalism? Anti-piracy on the high seas? I, I don't know. I, what is this specter? And I, and I don't say this without some sense, without some exposure to the, to the rhetoric surrounding globalism. All right. I've been a, a kind of a sea level fan, you know, like a, not really into, but for entertainment purposes, a listener, a, a consumer of Alex Jones since before Alex Jones was Alex Jones. Like the globalists that, are crapping themselves! <laughs> way back in the day, before anybody knew who he was, when all he had was... Do you guys remember Prison Planet? Like, I don't even think that website exists anymore. Prison Planet-TV or .TV. Those were the good old days, right? When instead of having instead of having his YouTube channel, which wasn't really a thing at that point, he would come out with these, like, four-hour-long documentaries where he would go into deep detail about the globalists and the new world order, you know, and the, and, uh, you know, the fricking frogs and all this stuff, you know, and it was a good time. It was entertaining, but at no point did I ever actually come to some kind of coherent understanding of what exactly it was I was supposed to be so afraid of. Prison planet is still a thing. It, it is basically the flagship website for every bad, uh, conspiracy website like, uh, What's that guy who wanted to scream at us about Muslims? It looks like his website. Right. <laughs> um, it looks like uh, Steve Carlson's website. It looks like sure. Um, it looks like just crazy websites. All right, we, we got Dan in Hopkins who wants to take a shot at uh, explaining this to me. How you doing, Dan? Good. You know, I think I don't. Um, global. You know, they are globalists. They want fewer bureaucrats running the whole world. <laughs> you know, the UN is kind of a a foreshadowing or a shadow of what. That would be, I don't know that the Koch brothers, it would seem to me they're more conservative. It's hard to understand that yeah. they would be for one world. I mean, a few leaders running the whole world. You know, like, for example, being subjected to U.N. laws. Obama right. was all over that. Right. And sure, Hillary. sure. And so, and then uh, with free trade, I think, is, is certainly probably less to do with that and more to do with, in, you know, a political correctness worldwide. 
Ooh, that's interesting. Political correctness worldwide. That's your, that's your perception of free trade? No, no, no. Free trade, I don't think, is a part of... Oh, I see. I see. You're idea. making a distinction. The idea is more, and from what I gather, is more about leftist, you know, the UN bureaucrat. I'll, I have a very foul name for them. But, um, <laughs> not sovereignty, no borders. Right, yes, Hillary right. Clinton certainly as is 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 an open borders person. Sure, uh, there Barack you go. Obama wasn't originally. Right. Has been, but, yeah, that's, that's probably more of what it, accurate of what it is. I appreciate so it, Dan. Hands with you. I right. appreciate it. Thank you very much. Yeah, I think that I think Dan gets the cookie, the, the uh, hypothetical cookie for the day, in terms of giving us the right answer to the question. Globalism used to mean something. You know, back in those the, in the prison planet days, the old school days, the the thing that Alex Jones and others, it wasn't just Alex Jones, there, there were more legitimate people who have been concerned about globalism. I, to varying degrees, have been concerned about globalism as Dan just defined it, which is the loss of national sovereignty, the the kind of subjection. Think in terms of the federal government here in the United States. And the way that the Constitution was originally envisioned as a compact between the states. I'm reminded of Dave Binner's book that I believe is actually entitled Compact Between the States. Compact of the Republic. Compact of the Republic, which is even better. It's even more specific language, which is exactly what I would expect from better. But, you know, this idea of an agreement between the states to work in concert towards an agreed upon end. That's how it started. And over time... It has devolved into the states having their sovereignty subordinated by an ever bloated federal apparatus. So we've seen that in the context of our own country. And I think the, the to the extent that globalism is a legitimate thing that people have a legitimate apprehension about, it's the idea of a global kind of global federalism wherein the nations have their sovereignty subordinated to regional and global authorities. And to the extent that that's a thing, I agree it's bad. But you have to explain to me how the Koch brothers and free trade have anything whatsoever to do with that. How the idea that we shouldn't have tariffs, that we should be able to, that you should be able to seek the highest value at the lowest cost in the international market has anything whatsoever to do with the subordination of national sovereignty. Because I'm not seeing it. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. Yeah, I guess Prison Planet is still a thing. Checking it out during the break. There's, uh, there's a couple of films listed on here that I haven't seen. Strategic Relocation. Came out in 2012 by Alex Jones, apparently uh, a documentary that schools you in ways to, you know, basically pick up and get out of town, relocate yourself and hunker down in the event of uh, some sort of post-apocalyptic situation. Camp FEMA, another film that's a classic from 2010, talking about how we're all going to end up in internment camps. It's uh, it's a lot of fun over there at Prison Planet. I, I miss mean, those days. if you can separate yourself from the whatever political agenda that Alex Jones is advocating for. He's quite entertaining. I, I won't deny I, that. Uh, absolutely. And that's that's why I've entertained him, because he is highly entertaining. And there is a kernel of legitimacy to the things that he talks about. Like there when you when you if you can <laughs> 
get through the chaff, there is some kernels of weed in there, you know, in terms of legitimate information. You should be prepared for things. You should be uh, aware of, of government tyranny and what have you. We're talking about globalism, which, of course, is a an ever-present uh, boogeyman put forward by the likes of Jones. And I, the question that I have for, for you, the listener, is what is globalism and what is a globalist in light of Donald Trump's recent response to the Koch brothers? The Koch brothers over the weekend said that, look, we don't like these tariffs. We don't like the ways in which the current administration is imposing itself upon free trade and imposing itself within the economy. We think it's bad policy. We think it's going to have a bad effect upon the United States long term. And we're looking to potentially break from our monopoly of support on Republicans and go across the aisle and look at Democrats who are willing to support us on our free trade priorities. And in response to that, Trump let out with their globalists in a tweet today. So I, I'm trying to understand the connection between free trade and globalism. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, 651-989-5855. Let's go to Raj in Minneapolis. Welcome to the program. Uh, hi. Yeah, I think uh, globalism, like the previous caller explained, does include uh, bureaucracies, uh, whether it is within a country and then they seem to have the same type of thinking across the world, you know, things like human rights or, um, you know, climate change and things like that. And But it also there is a combination with crony capitalism mm. because many of these, you know, so, you know, anybody can enter the ranks of the globalists if you follow these professions and rise to the top, if you become a, you know, a, a federal uh, government employee and mm-hmm. rise to, you kind of get influenced by that. And then if you don't uh, work in that manner, I guess you could be called a globalist too. But it's the, usually there is an element of crony capitalism there because uh, that's what unifies uh, the bureaucrat uh, in, let's say, uh, Europe with the bureaucrat in uh, uh, America, maybe, because, uh, you know, there's some company maybe that is... Uh, Working between uh, them. Money that is flowing sure. to uh, help uh, uh, operations in both places. I got you. So can, can you, do you have any thoughts then on the connection between the Koch brothers and what they advocate for in terms of free trade yeah. and this globalist uh, agenda? Think, no, immigration probably is a pro-immigration stance, even though I'm an immigrant myself. I'm mm-hmm. in India. I'm a legal immigrant. But I would say that if you are supporting like illegal immigration and amnesty you can mm-hmm. look at that as a kind of a globalist agenda because you are saying hey the will of the people of the nation doesn't matter we need to let everybody in because it helps provide cheap labor or whatever else mm-hmm. right free trade on the other hand i'm not so sure right uh, <laughs> but on the other hand i do feel that the Koch brothers by saying that we would even support Democrat candidates. I mean, look at the Democrat Party. They've got that Cortez lady walking around. Right. Like, they're really going to support a party that has that lady as its leading face? Hey, you make a solid point. You make a solid point. I, I think what they're doing is it's less about, oh, we're excited about Democrats now, and more of just a shot across the bow to Republicans saying, look, you, you can't take us for granted. We, we're going to be willing to take a look at anybody who will support our priorities. Now, 
good luck finding a Democrat, certainly the likes of Ocasio-Cortez, who's going to be in any way supportive of free trade. But but even so, you know, merely putting the shot across the bow of, listen, we don't care about party. We care about getting our our agenda accomplished because we believe it's good for business and good for the for the United States of America. But that makes sense to me that you did say that you when you said that, hey, where did uh, uh, Trump beat the Koch brothers? Well, he did because he beat all of the candidates in the primaries that were being supported with Koch money. Right. Uh, Rubio and uh, there was one or two other people. So uh, I would say he did beat them. Well, there you go. Appreciate it. Appreciate the uh, the yeah. input, Raj. Appreciate you listening to the program. Let's cut over to Barry in St. Paul. Welcome to the program. I think the truth of the matter is that the tweet was put out in more of a emotional idea. It was less about them, him really calling them a globalist, more about him picking a, an epithet that right. he, he couldn't, that they couldn't refute. Sure. Because they gave a shot across the bow, and now he's trying to get a shot across the bow, saying, I don't really need you. I don't care sure. if you support me. I think that's all it was. And to tell you the truth, the Koch brothers would have a lot more better luck starting and supporting a whole new party than supporting the Republican Party. <laughs> yeah, I can't necessarily argue with you on that at this point. I mean, it certainly does seem as though there we're trapped in this this partisan or bipartisan, you know, you might even describe it as bipolar way of thinking, whereby, you know, it, everything is about dictating what the party narrative is going to be and then holding people accountable to that narrative rather than actually deliberating the merits of policy and, and determining through some sort of value judgment what's actually the best way to move forward. And, you know, that's unfortunate. Isn't it Trump getting elected a whole, isn't that proving that whole point that you're talking about? Is It's more about who leads the party and what they believe than what the, what everybody else believes below them. I could you know? see where you can make that case. I could see where you can make that case. However, you know, certainly it, it, it seems as though, you know, rather than trying to kind of undo that paradigm, that partisan political paradigm, it seems as though what Trump has done is, is is kind of take it over and use it from the inside to to def- define it, redefine it as how he would like to see it, which I don't blame him for. I mean, that's what people who get elected president of political parties have always done. It just it's kind of counter intuitive or counter the narrative of trying to do something that's really different from anything we've seen before. We have seen what he's doing before. Yeah, and, and the only way he can really change anything is by changing the fundamentals of how Washington works. I and agree. that's not going to happen. Yeah, it would be it'd be really nice if it did, wouldn't it? It would be really nice if all this rhetoric about draining the swamp and, and mixing things up and, and blowing up the establishment actually manifest in some radical, revolutionary, structural uh, redefinitions of institutions and even eliminations of a lot of those institutions in Washington. Appreciate your call as always, Barry. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. I got a piece of land out in the countryside. Back smell We're all going to die. It's only a matter of time now. The 3D printed guns are coming after us. The 3D printed guns. You know, it's bad enough that we have all these guns out there that are of their own accord, 
taking on their own personalities and pointing themselves at innocent children and pulling their own trigger and murdering people. Uh, we have to do something about those guns that are already in existence. But now we have this, this viral phenomenon that we're right on the verge of whereby guns are going to start leaking out of our printers, kind of like liquid metal, you know, like the Terminator 2, the T-1000. Liquid plastic guns are going to form spontaneously and, and pool themselves into their their full constituency and take aim at innocence and start murdering people left and right. This is what we have to be concerned about now. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Catch us streaming at in your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights, 651-989-5855 is the number to join us. Brad Ullman takes those calls and produces the show. So we talked about this story uh, last week or the week before. There was a case that was dismissed uh, that was uh, taking place trying to keep the uh, distributor of 3D printed gun plans in digital form from posting information to his web page or making it available to other people to sharing it. And, you know, this was something that started on the Obama administration and in a, in a strange surprising and somewhat inexplicable move, the government just gave up its case, which almost never happens. It almost never happens that the bureaucracy decides, you know, we're just, we're not going to move forward with uh, our, desire to impose upon the rights of citizens but they did in this case and as a result it was going to be legal tomorrow for uh, the the organization in question the texas-based defense distributed to make available these plans for 3d printed guns online but that is no longer the case from the star tribune a federal judge on tuesday stopped the release of blueprints to make untraceable and undetectable 3D-printed plastic guns as President Donald Trump questioned whether his administration should have agreed to allow the plans to be posted online. The company behind the plans, Austin, Texas-based Defense Distributed, had reached a settlement with the federal government in June, allowing it to make the plans for the guns available to download on Wednesday. The restraining order from U.S. District Judge Robert Lasnik in Seattle, of course, right, puts that plan on hold for now. There's a possibility of irreparable harm because of the way these guns can be made, he said. Washington State Attorney General Bob Ferguson called the ruling a complete, total victory. We were asking for a nationwide temporary restraining order putting a halt to this outrageous decision by the federal government to allow these 3D downloadable guns to be available around our country and around the world. He granted that relief, Ferguson said at a news conference after the hearing. That is significant. Eight Democratic attorneys general had filed a lawsuit Monday seeking to block the settlement. They also sought a restraining order, arguing the 3D guns would be a safety risk. Now, there's a piece over at Fox News written by a friend of the show, John Lott, who, uh, as you may very well be aware, literally wrote the book on guns and crime and gun rights and is one of the premier experts and advocates for the second amendment and uh, the interaction between guns and gun owners and gun laws. He takes on this issue of 3d printed guns and this, this uh, latest imposition on the part of a federal court. And uh, his conclusion is that not only is this a violation of the second amendment of the U S constitution, 
It's also a violation of the first. Writing at Fox News, he says, gun control advocates don't just have a problem with the Second Amendment. They also have real problems with the First Amendment. In an era when people can use 3D metal printers to make guns, does the First Amendment protect a book detailing a gun manufacturing process, but not a computer file that does the same thing? The question has become particularly urgent. The computer programs that tell 3D printers how to produce these guns were scheduled to be legally downloadable Wednesday tomorrow. However, on Tuesday, today, U.S. District Judge Robert Lasnik in Seattle issued a temporary restraining order blocking the downloads until a hearing August 10th. Lasnik's order came in response to a lawsuit filed by Democratic attorneys general in eight states seeking an emergency injunction to stop the legal downloads. They argued the downloads would create a, quote, great detriment to the public and public safety, unquote. Even President Trump weighed in with a treat to, uh, tweet Tuesday saying, I am looking into 3D plastic guns being sold to the public, already spoke to NRA, doesn't seem to make much sense. The courts have previously weighed in on a similar First Amendment question. In 2010, the Supreme Court found that the First Amendment protects violent video games in the same way that newspapers and books are protected. A 2001 decision by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit said, communication does not lose constitutional protection as speech simply because it is expressed in the language of computer code. And this is a key point, right? Like, this is the point, is that is when we talk about, and we've seen other applications of the Constitution that we've needed, we've needed to bring into the 24th century. Like, for instance, the Fourth Amendment, protection from unreasonable search and seizure. Does that apply only to your physical papers and effects in your house? Or does it apply to your digital property as well? You know, do you have a, a right to be protected from the unreasonable intrusion of government investigators into your digital space? And if you're looking at the actual spirit of these amendments to the Constitution, if you're actually, if you're looking at what was actually intended to be the effect on individual people's lives and manifestations of people's individual liberty in, enshrined codified in the Bill of Rights, then the answer is obviously yes, right? Obviously, we're meant to be protected in all, what, no matter what the, the manifestation of our speech is, it's supposed to be protected. No matter what the manifestation of our property is, it is supposed to be protected. It doesn't matter whether it's digital or physical. And if you're going to say, you know, are we, are we going to start burning books now that detail the manufacturing process? You can go online right now. I mean, I hate to say this. I don't think it's a big secret, but you can go on a line right now and find all kinds of information on how to make all sorts of dangerous stuff. Well, you can get instructions on how to make an AR-15 just by getting the pieces. It's not complicated, right? And this not only is the information out there and in effort to try to prevent people from accessing the information is an inherent violation of their First Amendment rights, in addition it's technically implausible. This is trying to put the genie back in the bottle. You know, and this is something that John Locke continues with uh, as he goes on at Fox News. He writes, If you believe gun control advocates, 3D printers will undermine all our gun control laws, letting criminals avoid background checks and making it impossible to ban types of guns. But gun control advocates don't understand the technology has already outpaced the ability of government to regulate it. If they want... Criminals can already print guns. 
the change that had been scheduled to take place Wednesday would have had no noticeable impact on criminals avoiding background checks and obtaining guns illegally because the existing laws aren't stopping them. Surprise, surprise. With a 3D metal printer, people can use these computer files to make metal guns functionally and visually indistinguishable from a store-bought gun. Metal printers with the capacity to build a firearm are running at less than $10,000, and the price continues to drop. The printers allow people to make so-called ghost guns, which don't have registered serial numbers and aren't made by regulated gun makers. Disaster is said to be imminent. A Washington Post editorial this past Sunday had no problem with exceptions to the First Amendment and warned that posting these computer programs will eviscerate gun control laws and lead directly to the loss of more innocent lives. And he goes on to continue. And this, look, this presents a good litmus test. Maybe not a perfect one, but certainly a good rule of thumb for determining whether your law is stupid or not. If it's literally impossible to enforce, if it's literally impossible to stop people from doing what it is that you're trying to stop them from doing, maybe your law's dumb. Maybe you need to take a second look at it. 651-989-5855. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name's Walter Atson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com. We've talked many times before about this sort of king of the hill contest that takes place amongst different minority groups as part of the left-wing coalition, this intersectional minority politics you know the premise of which if you're if you're unfamiliar with what this is intersectional minority you know th- social theory or whatever how, whatever the technical term is for it it's the idea that that one's claim to moral authority or one's one's claim to the spotlight is enhanced by the number of oppressed minority statuses that they can claim in one list, in one person. So, you know, if, you, if you're if you just black, and that's all you are, you're black, but you're also a man and cisgendered and, you know, I, I guess not poor, maybe, would probably be something that would qualify you as being privileged. There are all these things you can still be that have all kinds of privilege and also be black. So if all you are is a black man, you're not very high up on the intersectional minority totem pole, right? Same thing if you're just a woman, but you're not gay and you're cisgendered and you're white, right? Like that's a problem. If you're, if all you could say is, well, I'm a woman and that's the only thing you're bringing to the table, you're not going to get a whole lot of sympathy from your allies on the left. If however, you are able to check all these different minority boxes, right? Like you're, you're Muslim, you're gay, you're not quite sure whether you're a man or a woman. You're kind of on the fence about that. Uh, you have some, some other sort of, uh, minority status that we've never even heard of before, but you're going to claim it. You know, you think you're a robot. I don't know what the case may be. If you can claim all these different things, then you kind of achieve this pinnacle of victim actualization. You reach the top of the pyramid, the top of the totem pole. And as a result, every word that falls out of your mouth is taken as gospel and is irrefutable and is more important than the words coming from lesser people who don't have all these intersectional minority statuses. And so this is the the kind of the kind I I guess you could say hunger games that is taking place over on the left side of the political spectrum. And it's really fascinating to watch the 
actual battles that are taking place between Johnny-come-lately victimization groups or minority groups versus old tried-and-true establishment victim groups over on the left. And one example of it comes to us from The Economist. This is a piece written by a Sarah Didham, who describes herself as a feminist, and she's also a journalist. And she's responding to the rise in trans rights, to, to this political and cultural effort to advocate for, quote, rights, unquote, for people who are transgendered or experiencing gender dysphoria. She writes, in June, Cancer Research UK, a charity, tweeted, Cervical screening, or the smear test, is relevant for everyone aged 25 to 64 with a cervix. That was the tweet. The odd phrasing, everyone with a cervix, rather than women, was not accidental. The charity explained that it had deliberately chosen to use what it described as inclusive language. Similarly, the campaign Bloody Good Period, which donates tampons and sanitary towels to asylum seekers, uses the word menstruators rather than women. And Green Party Women, an international campaign group with the British Green Party, confirmed last year that its preferred designation for the constituency it represented was not, in fact, women, but non-men. Non-men. These linguistic peculiarities are all responses to the astonishingly rapid advance of trans activism. Maria Kessling of the National Center for Transgender Equality and American Lobby Group claims that it has made faster progress than any movement in American history, and the same holds true across the globe. In Britain, for example, trans people's legal status is governed by the Gender Recognition Act of 2004. Just 13 years after its passage, that legislation was deemed outdated by a Women and Equalities Committee inquiry. But while the trans rights agenda has moved fast, its impact hasn't been felt equally by all parts of society. Trans people face substantial injustices. Now, this is where the author, because you got you to keep in mind, she's a feminist, she's a leftist, she subscribes to the progressive worldview, right? So she's not arguing against intersectionality. She's not arguing against the culture of grievance or the culture of conquest. She's all about both. What she's arguing is that the rise in trans rights and all this advocacy for transgenderism is actually crowding out her cause, her cause, which is feminism and the fight against the patriarchy and the fight against misogyny. She continues in, in, an, in an effort to try to, you know, establish her credibility. Trans people face substantial injustices, most significantly violence and discrimination. The process of applying for a gender recognition certificate is intrusive and burdensome for many. And there are frustrating waiting lists for medical transition, which are compounded when doctors appear unsympathetic or obtrusive. Yet rather than confront male violence or lobby the medical system, the focus of trans activism has overwhelmingly been the feminist movement, spaces and services designed for women, and the meaning of the word women. Well, yeah, that's right. Of course it is. You know why? And here's your problem, Sarah. I hope you don't mind if, I, if we're on a first-name basis here. Here's your problem. You're not going to make any headway with your argument. Because in, in order to actually combat what you find yourself facing from the trans rights crowd, you're going to have to throw away a premise which your own cause is rooted on. 
taking you through this piece at The Economist written by a feminist and journalist by the name of Sarah Didham. And she's, uh, she's complaining. She's complaining about another movement. Like she's part of the feminist movement, the, the left wing, because there's, you know, there's, there's legitimate feminism and there's this nonsense. Legitimate feminism is the idea that women should be treated as human beings of equal moral worth to men. That they should not be treated as second-class citizens or denigrated, or you know, not al- in in able to compete on their merits with men. But it doesn't disallow the actual value judgment. It doesn't disallow the actual results of that comparison of that competition. Right? You you still acknowledge that men and women are two different genders two different sexes with two different biological definitions and components that have a actual real world effect. But you know, the feminism that this gal is trying to promote is one that's seeking to through force of law, naturally get us all to a point where we pretend as though there's no meaningful difference between men and women. And that is an attack upon the law of identity. And by law of identity, I'm I'm referencing a philosophical concept. You go back to Aristotle. This was his great insight. His great insight was A is A. Like the variable A is the variable A. A thing is what it is. It is what it is. You hear this said all the time, right? It is what it is. Anytime somebody says that, they're just rephrasing Aristotle's law of identity. Things are what they are, and they are not what they are not. This is basic. This is concrete, foundational to our understanding of reality. We cannot proceed in any productive capacity without acknowledging this simple truth, that identity is a real thing that matters. And yet, at the root of nearly every left-wing cause is a rejection of this fundamental philosophical truth, a rejection of reality itself. And it's particularly apparent in this piece at The Economist by this feminist who's writing, complaining about the trans rights movement, because the headway that's been made in the culture by people who are advocating for quote-unquote rights for transgendered individuals is having a negative impact upon the work, upon the fragile gains, as Sarah Denham puts it, of the feminist movement. Well, yeah. Because, you know, it turns out, it turns out when you open the door to redefining reality, your reality is going to get redefined. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Streaming at com and your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. Appreciate you tuning in. 651-989-5855 is the number to join us. Brad Ullman takes those calls and produces the show. Let's go to David in Woodbury. Thanks for holding through the break. Thank you. Um, the reason I'm, I'm calling is I want to ask your, your opinion on this. Sure. Based on what you're saying. A person decides that they want to identify basically with any particular group or all the groups, right? Right. So let's say that person decides to do that for whatever reasons they're doing it. Now, the next question is, does that necessarily imply there's some legal ramifications to it? And do I do? Does a person in those circumstances, at any given time, have any obligation to prove 
that they match that criteria because, again, we're talking about these are constructs largely of the mind to some way, degree or another, and therefore, you know, if I feel pretty one day and I feel this the next day and et cetera, et cetera, um, how can anybody say, well, you're not really... You're, you're not really this, you're so, not really that. Right, and, and what you're getting after is something that I call the annexation of the mind. And what it is, is it's this idea that my my feelings and my judgments are more important than your feelings and your judgments. So the fact that I'm, the, the fact that I'm a man who you know, was born a man and has male equipment, and then one morning I wake up and I decide I'm going to be a woman today. You have to, I now annex your mind. I now get to dictate to you that you will regard me as a woman because I feel that way, not because I've actually been able to demonstrate through any sort of of argument or presentation of fact that I have, in fact, magically transformed into a woman overnight. Well, the, the, the next point is, so what if everybody just says, I'm all these things? Well, gonna, how are you going to dispute it? You, we, you, we, meaningless at that point. Yes, and that and that's what I'm getting at. That's that's the consequence. I appreciate the call, David. That is the consequence of following this non-logic through to its conclusion. Is you reach a point of the nothing from the never-ending story. You reach a point where nothing matters, nothing makes any sense. There is no reality. That we're all living in a dream on the back of a turtle somewhere. Like it's it's. Utter and complete nonsense is what you're left with if you follow this down to its philosophical moorings. And that's why that's why it's more than just silly. It's actually dangerous. It's physically dangerous to allow these kinds of ideas to, one, go unanswered in the public discourse, and two, have any sort of legal weight placed underneath them or behind them in the form of the state telling you that you must yield to the stupidity of another human being. Let's talk to Leland in Minneapolis. Welcome to the program. Yeah, I was just reflecting on the fact that you said that it was dangerous. Some of the jobs that I had before I had my own business, you would go into these places, and these places had no women working there. Mm -hmm. And you went in, and after you start working, you figured out why. Every once in a while, some woman would show up and, say, well, there's no women working here, and the guy's like, well, you know, it's more kind of like a guy environment, but you're welcome to give it a shot. Mm -hmm. And every guy in the plant, just because they're just working around so many men, welcomed the opportunity, and they rooted for her. Right. About a half hour, 45 minutes, she's like, I just can't do this, because sometimes I'd pull all four muscles in my arms, but I couldn't let what I was holding on to go, otherwise I'd be crushed. Right, And I'm just looking over at this woman going, I don't know how she's going to be able to do this, but good luck, and I hope you don't get hurt. And after a while, they're just, she's just like, oh, I'm sorry. But if someone transgender went in there, and just because they called themselves a man, right. could actually get killed at one of these types of jobs. Right. Yeah. Well, I guess we're not concerned about that. I guess we're literally, and I appreciate the call, Leland. And listen, I, I know for a fact, not just from the news that you know I, I consider on a nightly basis preparing for this show, but also through the anecdotal experience of having talked to people in various levels of public service. Cities in this metro area, particularly the big ones, are literally less safe 
because of the public policy efforts to ignore the reality between men and women. And, you know, it, it goes, of course, it goes beyond just men and women, but it's this general idea that we we cannot take into consideration objective reality, that there's this, this there's something more important than objective reality. And the thing that's more important is the feelings of a favored constituency, the feelings of an intersectional minority coalition, that their desire to be thought of as equal is more important than whether or not their capacity objectively actually is equal. And that results, when you implement that into policy, when you implement it into your recruiting process for your fire department or your police department, or, you know, an example as was just presented in terms of the physical requirements of a job in construction or whatever the industry happens to be are such that you need, generally speaking, you need men in order to do the work. When you ignore all of that in order to make women feel good or transgenders feel good or whatever the constituency is, it literally endangers people's lives. And that is profoundly immoral. Isn't that, isn't on its face, isn't that obviously immoral? We're going to make the the city less safe. We're going to send firefighters into more dangerous situations in order to check a box on an intersectional minority, you know, ballot somewhere in order to earn these hypothetical progressive points that apparently you can cash in in the afterlife in order to get into the VIP room. I I don't know what the process is here that we're we're trying to aim for. Let's talk to Mike in Farmington. Welcome to the program. Good evening, Walter. Thanks for taking my call. Anytime. Uh, I have a question. You've probably seen some of these shows uh, on body modification. There was one one individual, he he basically thought he was a cat. He basically had all these surgeries. (laughs) I mean, I think he even had a tail installed. And, um, you know, there is a part of uh, where people like to fantasize and and have a fantasy life. And even as a kid, you can play as a superhero. Right, right, right. Some of that's really healthy. But... You know what makes it? I, I I want to pause for a second, Mike, because you just tripped upon something that's absolutely essential. Specifically, what is healthy about fantasy? First and foremost, fundamentally, the thing that is fundamentally important about it is that you recognize it as fantasy. That you understand before anything else that there's a distinction between what is real and what is fake. My five-year-old boy understands this distinction my five-year-old boy when you know when i when i when i'm having fun with him when i'm joking around with him and you know and i talk about there being there being a monster you know uh, around that bush or whatever the case may be he comes back with monsters aren't real but then he's turning around five minutes later you pretending that there's monsters chasing him right he understands that there is that there's a difference between fantasy and reality and using your imagination in order to pursue fantasy has a utility that's relevant to reality but is not to be confused with reality well the other thing that came to mind when you're talking about this is really what i would call a the diabolical nature of this where um Basically, you become unmoored from reality. That's right. And good and evil, and basically anything goes, and anything is okay. And I think the left 
the left, maybe they're going to get more than they bargained for because they think they've tried to hijack some of these youth uh, groups in order to further their political gains. Mm-hmm. And I think earlier you were talking about, well, now they're leaving the feminists behind, or right. now they're leaving... It's already happening. The, the, the chickens are already coming home to roost. That's what this article is all about. It's this gal, this feminist, complaining that now that the trans uh, activists are, are having their day, that it's crowding out all the fragile gains, as she puts it, of feminism over the past few decades. And who is, who is on the left even trying to examine some of this stuff that's going on? Uh, well, know, seeing it, it for what it is? fundamentally no one because at the point where they actually acknowledge the root problem they would cease to be on the left i appreciate the call mike as always that's the thing is that this is this emerges out of the fundamental worldview of progressivism of the left which at its root is a rejection of reality like that's the foundation i'm not being facetious i'm not being i'm not trying to be hyperbolic or use a rhetorical device i'm quite sincere and literal when i say the foundational idea of the left is that reality is not a thing that identity is not a thing that things aren't what they actually are and that nothing really matters and that your feelings surpass all including reality itself it is a fantasy that is lived out as though the fantasy were a reality and it applies to their ideas on economics. It applies to their social ideas, their cultural ideas, their ideas for public policy. Go down the list. We spent a whole a couple of segments last night talking about how Bernie Sanders' plan for single-payer health care is going to cost $32.6 trillion. And we went down the list of all the states where single-payer has been tried, where they've actually passed the law. They've actually made the law saying, we're going to have single-payer in this state. And then they go and form the committees to try to implement it. And they all, they all break out their calculators and their abacuses. And they realize, oh, geez, uh, this is going to cost a lot of money, and we don't know where we're going to find it. But they keep trying. They keep going after it because they're living in a fantasy. And the fantasy is more important than the reality. And if they were to pause for even one moment to acknowledge that something actually is what it is, that identity is a thing, that reality matters, their entire worldview would collapse in on itself, and they would become conservatives. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Twin Cities News Talk. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130-1035 FM. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson. 651-989-5855. During the breaks here, I've been continuing in my ordeal with Facebook trying to get an ad authorized. It's been... uh, at least a week-long ordeal at this point. I finally had my my address confirmed by snail mail. They have to mail a physical letter to your home, and then they got a code in it that you go and enter into the website. I finally got that done. I thought that was the end of the process. Then they came back and said that my photos of my driver's license front and back that I submitted were unclear, and so I had to, you know, <laughs> had to re-engage in uh, some Photoshopping in order to to make my images more clear and resubmit them, that got checked. And so then I resubmitted my ad thinking, oh, I'm okay now. My identity's been verified. And no, there's there's even more that I have to do. I have to go in and set up a disclaimer on our closing argument for Walt, with Walter Hudson Facebook page, which you should like, by the way, and uh, set in your notifications so you can see when we put stuff out. 
And now that's in review. So they got to review my disclaimer paid for by Walter Hudson, which I presume is adequate. I don't know if I need to put my physical address out on Facebook so that people can stalk me and uh, I can basically, what do they call that? Doxing? When people put out your personal information, I can dox myself through my audacious engagement in the public sphere. But it's amazing how many hoops you have to jump through here. I mean, it is cool getting mail from Facebook. I, <laughs> you get a letter that says Facebook, one hacker way, Menlo Park, California. It's pretty cool. <laughs> if you say so. That that might be an experience. We I think we might have experienced this in different ways, Brett. I mean... I thought it was cool. I, I agree that it's a pain, but it was sure. cool getting mail from Facebook. Well, sure, sure, sure. I, I can see that. I can understand that. I suppose I suppose it's like when I was, I think, how old was I when I did this? Oh, man, I had to have been less than 12. So it was probably like 10 or 11. And I fancied myself an author, and I wanted to write a novel about the Mario Brothers, about Super Mario Brothers. And so I wrote a letter to Nintendo of America and asked them for permission to write a novel about this character, the Super Mario Brothers. And I got a letter back from Nintendo. Very nice, you know, perfectly formatted. Of, you know, Hello, Mr. Hudson. Thank you for your inquiry. You know, letting me down nice and easy that I did not, in fact, have authorization to use their characters in an 11-year-old narrative. Probably a good call on their part. But I understand what you're going through there, what you're talking about in terms of you you, you get a communication from uh, an organization that you've used and respect quite a bit. All right. So there's a piece here from Matt Walsh, who, you know, by the way, we were talking, speaking of Matt Walsh, we talked about another piece that he did last week where he addressed this issue of transgenderism and specifically within the context of how... If you if you're going to say that it doesn't that there's nothing there's no standard by which a woman is considered a woman, which is basically what transgenderism is. Transgenderism conceptually is an attack upon womanhood as such and manhood as such. It's the idea that there is no standard by which we can determine for sure whether or not a man actually is a man or a woman actually is a woman. If you're going to accept that premise then the very idea of gender dysphoria, like the whole house, of, the whole conceptual house of cards collapses in on itself. Because how can you be confused about what your gender is? How can you say to yourself, well, I feel like a woman. If a woman isn't a thing that actually exists and has definition, right? Like how, how can you go through this process where where you're not you're not you think you might be something else if the something else you think you are isn't an actual defined thing right and so that's that lies at the root of what we were talking about earlier this hour with this feminist who's wringing her hands about how the the transgender rights movement is undermining the social justice gains that have been made by feminism over the past few decades yes absolutely there's no question about it because you you by by Becoming an ally of the transgender rights movement, you've undermined the very concept of gender itself. And your entire movement as a feminist is rooted in the concept of gender. So you've undermined the the conceptual basis of your own cause. Absolutely ridiculous. And, you know, Matt Walsh is always good at pointing these types of things out. He has another one here from the Daily Wire. 
If Twitter is looking to weed out the racism on its platforms, it may want to start with the New York Times. The paper recently published one of the most racist tweets you'll ever see. They tweeted, quote, New Hampshire is 94% white. It is now trying to figure out how to change that. Now, th- that was also a headline of an article they had over there at the New York Times. Attached to the tweet is a bigoted screed about New Hampshire's whiteness infestation. It begins with the sad tale of a certain Catalina Celentano who moved to the state and discovered to her horror that most of its residents speak English. She found herself in an ethnic vacuum, the author reports. One worries how Miss Celentano will react when she learns that the vast majority of the earth is a non-Spanish-speaking vacuum. The article continues, New Hampshire, like its neighbors Vermont and Maine, is nearly all white. This has posed an array of problems for new arrivals who often find themselves isolated and alone without the comfort and support of a built-in community. It has also posed problems for employers in these states who find that their homogeneity can be a barrier to recruiting and retaining workers of different ethnicities and cultural backgrounds. The issue prompted about 100 business leaders, government officials, and members of nonprofit organizations to meet Thursday to search for ways that New Hampshire, which is 94% white, might lure other racial and ethnic groups as well as younger people. Now, you know, Matt Walsh asks us, let us consider how this all would look if it was written about any other race. Imagine the reaction if the New York Times published something like this. Detroit like Atlanta and Birmingham, is nearly all black. This has posed an array of problems for new arrivals who often find themselves isolated and alone without the comfort and support of a built-in community. It has also posed problems for employers in these states who find that their homogeneity can be a barrier to recruiting and retaining workers of different ethnicities and cultural background. The issue has prompted 100 business leaders, government officials, and members of nonprofit organizations to meet Thursday to search for ways that Detroit, which is 83% black, might lure other racial and ethnic groups as well as younger people. Change just a few words, and suddenly it becomes extremely racist. Or rather, its racism suddenly becomes apparent even in the most obtuse observer. It is racist to treat the preponderance of a certain race as an objective problem. It is racist to try to lower the percentages of a certain race just for the sake of lowering it. It is racist to move to an area and accuse it of being an ethnic vacuum just because most of the residents have a different ethnicity from your own. It would be racist if I went to South Korea and scolded it for being Korean, and it is racist if Hispanics follow a similar procedure when they come to America. That from Matt Walsh over at the Daily Wire in his typical fashion and uh, unassailable logic as usual. Closing argument, my name's Walter Hudson, 651-989-5855, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, closing argument, my name's Walter Hudson. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com, your iHeartRadio app, two ways to stream us. Appreciate you joining us this evening. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. You can join us at 651-989-5855. That's our number. Brad Olin takes those calls and produces the show. Let's go to Barry in St. Paul. Welcome to the program. Hey, I hope I have a controversial idea for you, but honestly, I support people who want to 
want to be transgender and all that fun stuff. Mm-hmm. But honestly, I believe they have the freedom to do that and associate with who they want to associate with to be able to reinforce their ideas that they are who they think they are. I agree. But the problem is, is when they start trying to force people who don't want to believe that, that they are, if they're really biologically male, that they are female, or if they're biologically mm-hmm. female, that they are male. Right. That, that's where the problem is, and that's where where the whole issue is. is and that's why they both force the left instead of the right, because the right doesn't really talk about that they support them. They talk about how we don't want them to be forcing people without the... Well, listen... They the, the stick without the carrot. I understand what you're saying, and your point has merit. It absolutely does. The problem is, it's very similar, or it's very analogous, at least in my mind, and perhaps there's some difference that we'll discover in our discussion here momentarily. But it's very similar in my mind to Black Lives Matter, in the sense that when, when you actually go through and you look, I forget the name of the website, but there's a, a, a site out there that kind of has like a manifesto of what Black Lives Matter is actually concerned about and their different prescriptions for public policy. Now, I don't agree with all of it, but there's a hefty chunk in there that has a lot of merit. Like a lot of their complaints about the the way that the law enforcement system has evolved out of the the remnants of chattel slavery and Jim Crow and what have you. There's a lot of merit to that history that deserves our sincere and honest consideration. And when they talk about the different prescriptions they have for reforming the criminal justice system, a lot of that stuff has merit. The problem is, is that I we can't have a good faith conversation about any of that because their their starting point for the debate is everybody's racist, the cops suck, America's horrible, we're going to take a knee during the national anthem. Like, that's their starting point, is that everybody sucks and you're all racist. And so when you start from there... I don't have any interest in engaging with you on things that we might actually agree about because you're being you're being rude, right? Like if you want to describe it no other way, the best way to describe it is you're being rude. And in a similar sense, if for for uh, people who identify as transgender, who have gender dysphoria, who legitimately have have like to identify as being the opposite of the gender that they came into this world as at birth, if if they want to make the argument that look. I'm an individual human being with rights, and I get to think what I want and say what I want and live how I want, and all I'm asking for is for you to leave me alone and let me be that way and for me not to be assaulted for it as I do so. If they wanted to have that conversation, then that's where they would start, but that's not the conversation they want to have. The conversation they want to have is, how, is we're coming into your bathroom. We're coming into your place of business. We're going inf- to teach your kids that what you say is right is actually wrong. We're going to impose ourselves on you, and if you push back at all, it's because you're a bigot. It's because you're a homophobe, or I don't even I don't even know what the I guess transphobe is probably a word. You're a transphobe, whatever it is, whatever the epitaph is by which they're going to shut down debate. That's what they're going to call you. And so when their starting point is you're a horrible human being unless you agree with me, I'm not particularly interested or inclined or oriented towards having a good faith conversation about how their their peculiarity can actually manifest in a context of liberty. Well, I don't agree with your statements, but then the question is, then how do we bring everybody together to make it work? Because cause I think the reason why they go that way, right, is because they feel that that's the way they've been pushed. 
So they're they're using the power that they recognize. I don't think that's true. As a, well, but that's how they feel. They're, they see the left pushing against these people, right? You know, mm-hmm. like with uh, Title IX, right? How, how all Title IX, it took the power of the state. That's how they see it to be able to make this stuff happen. Now they're trying to use that same power to be able to make what they want happen. Well, that's sure, that's that's go. true. But but so maybe I'm mishearing you. But the, there's two different there's two different levels at which this kind of activism can take place. One is in a good faith space of persuasion in the marketplace of ideas, right? That's where people are actually having a conversation about ideas and actually trying to persuade one another on the merits of those ideas. And certainly I would agree that there's a significant portion of any given constituency, whether it's the people who identify with Black Lives Matter or people who identify as trans rights activists or whatever the case may be, who are open to having a good faith conversation about ideas. However, the leadership, the people at the top, the people who, who formulate the strategy and have the plan and have the, and formulate the, and execute the political agenda, they are not interested in a good faith debate. They are interested in revolution. And all they, in the trans rights or the, 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 the trans uh, sexual community, all they see is another constituency that can be weaponized in order to foment the revolution against capitalism and freedom and liberty and your individual rights. Well, and I think the reason why they don't fight in the area of ideas is because America as a whole has lost their sense of moral right and wrong. So how do you define yeah, in, right and wrong when there is no right or wrong anymore? That's why they go after the concept of identity and, and undermine it. Because you, you, if you don't acknowledge at root that a thing is what it is, that A is A, then you don't have any basis upon which to move forward and identify things as right or wrong. Everything becomes relative, or another way to say it is that everything becomes meaningless. I appreciate your call as always, Barry. Story out of the Star Tribune, which caught, uh, caught our eye here on the program this evening. Metro Transit. Metro Transit is indefinitely suspending uh, trips uh, along dozens of bus routes beginning Tuesday, citing a growing shortage of bus drivers. The state's largest bus operator announced the cancellations in a news release posted on its website Monday night. More than 65 trips spread between 40 bus routes across the metro area will be suspended. Metro Transit is about 90 drivers short of its target workforce, which has made it harder to cover all scheduled trips despite tremendous daily efforts to do so, according to the release. The agency added that it is conducting an aggressive campaign to hire more drivers. Despite the short notice, Metro Transit said it hoped the announcement would give riders enough time to make other travel arrangements. Some routes will have multiple suspensions, uh, and then it goes into the details of the specific routes that will be affected. Now, what's interesting here is they don't really get into addressing the why. Like, why is it that they're having such a hard time recruiting and retaining drivers you drop down into the comments section here at the star tribune always a great place (laughs) and people have some thoughts one of the thoughts that people bring up is the 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 lack of security the lack of safety apparently there have been a number of assaults that have taken place against drivers that may or may not have contributed to the uh the bus driver shortage um, there's another, there's a, a I, I don't want to presume gender here, but for the sake of, uh, for the sake of rhetorical brevity, we're going to assume this person is a man who writes that uh, he looked into 
the the job of being a bus driver for Metro Transit. He said the deal breaker was the schedule. New hires work the crap shifts, and the more senior drivers don't want those shifts. A typical day starting out would be a few hours in the morning at rush hour, the middle of the day off, and then back for a few more hours in the evening rush. Also, weekends, these split shifts kill an entire day for six to seven hours of paid work. So, in other words, effectively, you're looking at, I presume, something in the area of, you know, 12, 13, 14 hour day, effectively, in terms of, you don't, it's not like you can go home and go about your business because you have to be back, you know, I, I assume two, three hours later for the uh, afternoon part of your shift, but you're only getting paid for six or seven of those hours. So it's a part time job that you have to make a full time commitment to. I got to imagine there's a way to juggle the schedule such that that's not what you're asking people to do. And then, you know, I went and looked at the uh, the actual Metro Transit uh, hiring page. You know, they their their starting wage looks like is all just under twenty dollars an hour, thirty hours a week guaranteed. Which you know is if that's all you're getting is the thirty, that's under full time. Uh, and then they have different benefits and what have you. And you know, they they train you to to. It sounds like you get your CDL through going through the training process, which you know isn't a bad deal if. You're either one starting out, you know, you don't have, you don't have uh, other obligations like you know, being home to take care of a family or or anything else that you might need to attend to, um, and also that you have the patience to progress up the seniority chain because that's how you get locked into the better shifts or what have you. So maybe they're gonna have to rethink how they go about compensating or even uh, the, the, they might have to make some seek some concessions from the more senior folks which is always fun when you're dealing with uh, union employees 651-989-5855 closing argument my name is Walter Hudson Twin Cities News Talk AM 1130 103.5 FM so I was talking earlier about my trials and tribulations trying to get, you know, a really innocuous ad, like just a tiny little one minute video ad for this show placed on Facebook through our page for this show, Closing Argument with Walter Hudson, which you should like and set to show up in your notifications. Yeah, I, I was I was telling you guys about the trials and tribulations I've had trying to get this ad approved and published all these hoops I've been having to jump through. These new obstacles to being able to say stuff online to people who are under no obligation to entertain it and to people who, you know, presumably if they actually click on it and watch it, want to see what it says, want to engage with it. The Facebook's efforts to intervene in this interaction is prompted by the notion that something simply must be done about the Ruskies. Something simply must be done about the election meddling, the interference in the 2016 and now 2018 elections. Well, they have finally put their foot down and uh, we're about to have uncovered and presented before us the full breadth and width of Russian meddling. Check this out from Politico. Facebook shut down more than 2,000, no, I'm sorry, two dozen, two dozen inauthentic accounts and pages on Tuesday that sought to inflame social and political tensions in the United States. 24. 
and said their activity was similar in some cases connected to that of Russian accounts during the 2016 election. The action marked the social media giant's first significant acknowledgement of an ongoing coordinated propaganda campaign on its site since it implemented new safeguards after the 2016 vote. Several prominent lawmakers tied the activity to what they called the Kremlin's broader efforts to undermine American democracy. Facebook briefed lawmakers and Trump administration officials on its findings and response this week. According to a source who attended one of the sessions, more than 290 million Facebook users, oh, I'm sorry, 290,000, 290,000 Facebook users followed the now shuttered pages, which were created between March of 2017 and May of 2018. And it goes down and breaks down the, the different sites involved, one of which, by the way, was promoting the hashtag abolish ICE, popular new rallying cry on the left following outrage over Trump's administration separation of immigrant families along the Mexican border. So, you know, obviously a bunch of conservatives here that we're talking about. Obviously Russia's out there exclusively trying to run cover for Donald Trump. Uh Uh-huh. The accounts also ran about 1,500 ads on Facebook and Instagram. Oh, no, I'm sorry. The number was actually 150. At a cost of $11 million. No, it was actually 11000 One of them was created as recently as last month. So let's review, okay? And they go and talk about 30 events that were created and how there were you know, 5,000 people who were interested in these events. We're talking about 24 pages that ran about 150 Facebook ads at the total cost of $11,000. This is the big boogeyman we've been chasing for two years. This is like what what effect has did eleven thousand dollars of spending have on any given election? Please tell me in present me with a reasonable, plausible sense of how this has had any effect whatsoever on this election or that actions like this have had an effect on the 2016 election in terms of actually changing somebody's vote. It seems rather implausible to me that this is some that this level of activity, which again, just the nature of it, what the nature of this meddling is people saying things online, right? Like that's all it is. Somebody p- puts up money in order to put out an ad that says something and somebody sees that ad and then judges in their own mind whether it has any merit or value and then goes about their day. Like how, how is that is talking is now meddling. Is that what meddling is, is talking? Like I, I come to you and I say, Hey, this is what I think about Trump or this is what I think about Hillary, or this is what I think about Ocasio Cortez. Have I meddled with you in expressing that and expressing my opinion? Apparently, apparently that's the full breadth and width of what Russian Russian meddling is. Meanwhile, there's a piece over here at USA Today that talks about how hackers at a convention called DEFCON were able to hack into, within the course of an hour and 30 minutes, were able to hack into voting machines and demonstrate how completely unsecure they are. Now, that's a real problem, right? Like, if you're actually concerned about the integrity of elections, then maybe we should take a look at making our election system low tech and uh, utilizing tried and true methods 
to account for and secure ballots so that we can get accurate counts from the several precincts rather than depending upon easily accessible, hackable, computerized machines. Closing argument. My name is Walter Atson, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com.